This episode of The Candor Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras and lenses, but also anything you need for video, lighting, post-processing accessories, and so much more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com newsletter. Albert Watson is a photographic legend. The Scottish-born fashion and fine art photographer has produced over 100 covers for Vogue magazine and 40 for Rolling Stone, which include portraits of Alfred Hitchcock, Kate Moss, David Boy, Sophia Loren, Steve Jobs, and hundreds more. Along with his professional success, he has pursued personal projects focusing on Marrakesh and the Orkney Islands. He brings his well-developed eye to all of his work and is currently sharing how he does it all in his latest book, Creating Photographs, based on the online course to the Masters of Photography online video series. Albert has been on my short list since the early years of the show, and I'm so pleased to finally have a chance to share a conversation with him for you to enjoy. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Whereabouts in LA did you live when you were here? Um, I, I lived in uh, a couple of different places. The first studio I had was it was called the Indian Trading Post on Santa Monica, and was Santa Monica at Crescent Heights, and it's still okay, yeah. that building. And originally it was an Indian Trading Post, and it's got a, a totem pole outside it. The, before we took it, it was an Indian Trading Post. You know, it was like an Indian, but you could buy jewelry, Indian. Navajo stuff and belts and all that. Yeah. And then we took it over and it was a studio. And then uh, we turned it into a studio. And we were there for two years, actually. And then after that, Tony Scott, the, the director, yeah. he took it over. I knew Tony because he was in my class at, uh, at film school. So I knew Tony and he took it over after me. And then after Tony left it, it became the photographer Melvin Sikulski. Oh, yeah, Melvin, right. And, and he took it over. So those were the three people. Now, yeah, that's, who has it? Yeah, um, that, that space has quite the pedigree. Yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a great space, a great studio. And then in, let me see, that would be 1973, the beginning of, we then bought a beautiful studio that was already a photo studio on Melrose Avenue. Okay. And Melrose at that time was a very, in 1973, was actually a beautiful street. It was kind of empty. There was a lot of 
people there that did signs, you know, signs for buildings mm -hmm. and uh, billboards and stuff. You know, they, they manufactured things for sign making. We took over the, the studio and it was a really beautifully designed studio, a little bit Japanese looking. And it was a photographer called Hal Adams that was kind of a car photographer guy. And anyway, we then took it over. We had that between 74 until, and then I sold, but 73 to 76 we had it. And then I sold it to another photographer in 76. And then in 76, we moved to New York. But when you first moved here, when your family, where was where were your family living? Were you living in Hollywood as well or another part yes, of LA? Yes, uh, when you drive up Highland, uh, just before you hit the Hollywood freeway, there's on the right-hand side, there's Whitley Heights. I know exactly where you are. Yeah. And uh, we, we had a beautiful kind of villa, you could call it, up there. And so therefore we had the studio down in on Melrose, and then we had a beautiful house there up in Whitley Heights. Nice. And, and of course, when I moved to New York, we sold both of those. You know? Nice area, especially during that time. Oh, I know. It was fabulous. Yeah. It was well, thank you for doing this. Uh, I've, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, so I'm, I'm glad that the stars were finally aligned to allow us to, to do that. I wanted to start asking you a question about your parents, because your dad was a professional fighter, and your mom was a hairstylist. And yeah. those are really interesting jobs or positions to have, each of when, which of them have really sort of distinctive skill sets. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought about what things you think you learned from your parents, respective to what they did for a, for a living that applied to you as a photographer. I think the main thing was my father, who was in the 1930s, was a professional boxer. Then, of course, the war intervened and he went into the Navy. After the Navy, of course, by that time, he was older, certainly to be a fighter, and certainly to be lightweight. You know, heavyweight fighters go on much longer. But to be a lightweight, he went to teacher training college and he became a, a physical education teacher. And uh, that's what he did for the rest of his life. He was a physical education teacher. And I think the skill sets, especially from my father, he was pretty old school. I think, you know, there was myself and then my two sisters but I think that at that time, fathers felt they should really be strongly disciplining the son sort of thing. And therefore, I would say that I got benefited from a fairly disciplined upbringing. It, it was a different time now when I see kids now, for example, missing even a generation with my kids. Things were less are less disciplined now. Back then, you know, food was put on the table and you ate it. There was no discussion about, well, I don't like Brussels sprouts. You know, uh, whatever was on the plate, you basically ate what was on the plate. There was a lot of stuff going on like that. Like you didn't answer back to your parents. Now sometimes I see, like even with my grandkids, uh, that if one of my sons with his children tells them to put out the trash, there can be a five-minute discussion about <laughs> putting out the trash. Like, I really, is that really my job to put out the trash, you know? I never had with my father those discussions. He said, if he said, take out, which we call rubbish, you know, trash, take out the rubbish, then I took it out because that was what my job was and I had to do that. There was no, there wasn't. So that was the downside. You didn't really argue that much about it. That was the downside. But the, the upside was that later in life, there was a certain amount of discipline and for sure, 
one key element of being a photographer is discipline. I, I think it's hard to, to be a good photographer, or let's even go further, a very good photographer, or even go further, a great photographer, if you don't have discipline. And of course, sometimes the word discipline uh, in your work is that it's a difficult word discipline because sometimes you're so obsessed by photography and passionate about photography that you love it so much that maybe discipline really doesn't come into it because you're so passionate and love it and it's what you do in life and uh, therefore discipline doesn't come into it because you're obsessed by it. But and anyway, I, I appreciate the discipline I did get because I think it came in handy. In your, in your mother's role as a hairdresser, that involves a certain degree of social skills in terms of being able to engage your your clients. Is that, do you think that that's something you picked up from your mom or do you think it, it was just something that sort of came naturally to you? I think, I mean, she ran a little business, you know, hairdressing business. You know, she, she, she had clients who came to her to have their hair done. The one thing I think I got more from my mother than my father was uh, my mother had a very solid, high energy. She, she was a high energy person and my father was a low energy person. So, I mean, uh, but I definitely got a fairly frantic energy level from my mother in general. That, I mean, that was, I would say, I got discipline from my father and I would have said I got energy uh, from mm. my mother who was always kind of high energy. I mean, you could call my mother in the middle of the night when she was in well in her 80s and, and she was sharp as a tack. She would respond immediately and say, oh, how are you doing? Where are you? I would say that the thing I got from my father, discipline, and the thing I got from my mother was probably energy. Yeah, I could probably say the same thing as well. When I think about what my dad did, he was a pressman. So he ran a four-color press. All so right. printing out posters and all these things. Mm -hmm. And I remember him being in the midst of this machine because he would go up and, you know, climb into this machine and he would lay out the inks on the rollers. And then he'd go out to where the, they were spitting out the paper. And I remember that rhythm of the, the paper hitting the gate as it comes out. Yeah. And he would pull out a sheet and then he'd put it on you know, like it's kind of like a drafting table in which there was a light. And then he would analyze the, the, the color just by eye. There was no colorimeter. There was nothing like that. And then based on what he was seeing with his eye, he would adjust, you know, the, the combination of all the different inks. And, you know, that's, and I, I always, that was very, I was always very curious about it. And then years later, I kind of realized that that sort of exacting eye that my father had is something that I use as a photographer myself yeah. in terms oh, of there's, there's a, a visual discipline there yeah yeah and, and i had so much of more of an appreciation when i kind of made that made that connection um between the two of us in the uh, in the masters of photography uh, course there are two images that you made early on with a brownie camera of your sister yes and i was really struck but how old were you when you made those two pictures uh i would have been 15 15? 15. What immediately struck me, because this was before you had gone to college and started learning graphic design and studying photography, was the compositional sense 
in those two photographs. There's one where she's uh, positioned on the right-hand side um, alongside some columns, and then you see yes. a town in the, in the distance. And there's a second shot where she's at the center of a place that looks like it's an altar or something. Yeah, it was and a, a botanical garden. Botanical garden. And I was just like, wait, how old was he when he made this shot? Because there yeah. was such an awareness of the entire frame in those two images. And it really struck me that that even before you really started getting a formal education, that somehow you had a sense of what a good photograph looks like. Yes. Tell I mean, me about that. Why do you think it was that you had that sensibility at that moment? I think it's a great question because um, I'll, I'll give you kind of a viewpoint that I sometimes have about actors because I photographed so many actors over the years. And of course, I've, like everybody, I've seen a lot of movies, tens of thousands of movies. And I've always maintained in my own silly way, you might say, of coming to the conclusion that actors are born to be actors. They're born to be actors. And you can have a scale for an actor of one to 10, but to get on that scale, there has to be something inside of you, a, a, a natural, just something inherited. Who knows? Maybe from your great, great, great grandparents, maybe from your parents, maybe from your own display of what your persona is and how you feel about things. But I've always felt that you, if you choose to be an actor and maybe in the beginning, you're a, a two out of 10 actor, and you study, you do more projects, you work with better directors, and then after a couple of years, you move from a two to a three, and maybe you, oh, sometimes maybe you have so much charisma that maybe you start at a four, and with a lot of experience, you end up being a six. And you can move up the scale, but there has to be something inherent in who you are to be an actor. I think if, if it, in my kind of a little bit, I, I agree, a little bit of a silly way of looking at it, that some people who are not on that scale, that it's not in them, they can, and there's a whole bunch of people that are like this, that they decide, they say, I think I'd like to be an actor. I like the idea of being an actor. Um, I'm going to go to night classes. And I've actually worked with some people a little bit like that who have been going to night classes and taking acting classes for four and five and six years. And they still can't act. Uh, I think the same thing applies to photographers. I think you need something in yourself. I don't know what it is that you, you have a, a disposition towards doing it. I remember going to school when I was 12, 13 years old. And there was a guy in our class that was kind of, he was a, he was a smart guy. He, he was not super smart, but he was a smart guy. And when he started taking French, he just had this remarkable ability to echo the French teacher's accent. And he just could remember it the next day. Hmm. At the end of the week, he could remember it. And they very, very quickly, they found out that after three years from the age of 13, 14, and 15, this guy, by the time he was getting to 16, was almost fluent in French. And none of it, the rest of us all struggled with French. But this guy, for some mysterious reason, 
could manage just kind of remember everything in spoke French. And then the next thing was, they said, okay, this guy is amazing with languages. And his father came in and his father was the, the head of the Scottish Communist Party and wanted him to take Russian, of course. So the, guy, so the, the school then organized that he had a Russian teacher and this guy eventually, to cut a long story, ended up at Moscow University studying ancient Russian. He was completely fluent by the time he finished university in Russian, went to do a, a master's degree and a PhD in, in Moscow, and then came back and he ended up the head of the Russian department at Edinburgh University. Now, how come he just was able to suddenly kind of speak French? I mean, he had to work at it, but he just... For him, he had an ability that an inherit. And I think this, there's the same thing can happen with actors. The same thing can happen with languages. The same thing can happen with mathematics. And I think the same thing can happen with photography, that it's, that it's just something that you're drawn towards, that you feel comfortable doing. And there was always this idea that you could get better if you practiced it, and because of the obsession and the passion, you could then, your photographs became better. You became more fluent. And one analogy I think we, we used in, in the book was the idea that when you first get in a car to drive, you say, this is impossible. I'll never be able to do it. It's too complicated. I'm going to kill myself or I'll kill somebody else with the car. And then, of course, bit by bit by bit, you become more fluent, more comfortable. You can more or less be in the middle of a phone conversation, jump in the car and drive off and still carry on your phone conversation. And of course, it becomes a natural thing. What you're looking for as a photographer, you're looking for the same kind of fluency with cameras so as that you become fluent with the camera and fluent with composition, fluent with how you work in that rectangle you become so comfortable with it that you can then, in a way, I exaggerate a little bit, you can forget about the camera as a problem and you can concentrate on creativity and making great photos. Yeah, because you talk about in the book and also in the, in the video series about, you know, that the camera, the technical side is about 20% and 88% should be about creativity. And, and I think that in terms yeah, of the... Sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah. I am not denying that in the end, that this weird 20% or something, I'm not denying that when you first sit in a car, suddenly the mechanics and the driving is 100%. So when you, you're introduced to photography, of course, you have to know naturally where the shutter is, you know, to press that button. And so, But then you begin to then unravel the mysteries of all the technical things that you have to, to, to learn in photography. And of course, the miracle of the iPhone camera is that takes all of that away from you, you know. And then in the end, you can take a nice sunset shot with an iPhone and you don't have to do anything. You just point and press a button. Right. As that 20%, which I said 20%, in, in, in some ways, you can say that that percentage could almost disappear because it's natural. In other words, when you jump in a car in the morning, especially if you live in LA, and you, you must have been driving for years out there, that you jump too in many. a car. Yeah, too many. <laughs> you jump in a car. If, if I suddenly was sitting beside you and I said, now hold on a second, did you, did you look in your mirror? And at that point, you may even look at me and, and say, well, 
I think I do because it's automatic. I, of course, I would look in the mirror. I would never pull out without looking in the mirror, you know. So you get to a point, this idea that we say 20% of, of this is technical. I would almost go as far as to say it's an invisible 20, 30, 40%. It's just something what you should be concentrating on once you learn that, once you learn that 100% of driving the car, once you learn that 100% of learning a camera, then let's go. Yeah. Where are we going today, you know? Because it's a, it's a deep hole that a lot of photographers get into when they get to that stage about the technical side and they become completely, they keep digging a hole for themselves in terms of, okay, I have to learn this. I have to learn this more. I have to buy this equipment. And it doesn't allow them to have that sort of relaxed, almost uh, subconscious experience of the photo of, the, of creating a picture and, and able to move into that area of creativity. And I think that, that that's the way I kind of see it. You know, there's this space of like innate talent that's like not formed or shaped. You learn the technical side of the, uh, of the equipment and about Photoshop, whatever medium you're using. And then there's a, there's a period of mimicry, right? Where you're learning by emulating what other people are doing. Yeah. And there's a, there's a moment of transition that not everyone is able to make where they go into a place of personal creativity. And I think some people stop just short of that, where they're constantly fixated on the technical or they're endlessly emulating a particular photographer or whatever trend it sort of exists. And they find, they find it a challenge to figure out what they want to say themselves about their subject or what, or, or what they want to say with the camera. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering for you, did you have a moment or a series of moments like that where you kind of had gone through the phase of learning the competency of the camera, um, learning as a result of emulating, and then having a moment where you realized that you were saying something that was uniquely you? You know, when I was younger, and I've said this several times, that on a Monday, I would take a picture, and as I'm taking it, I would be saying to myself, wow, this is just a genius photo. This is as good as the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> this is something amazing, this photo. And then next day, the contact sheets would come in from the lab because it's shooting film. And you look at it and you go, oh, it's not quite as good as I remember it yesterday. And then on Wednesday, the majority of this creation that you did on Monday is stuck away in a, in a drawer somewhere. So I would look at that and I say, what the, what the hell is happening here? What, why did I think this was so fabulous? And at that time, a lot of the problem was that there was a slight disconnect there. It was like one of my cables wasn't plugged into the brain. And what, would, what was happening was it was very often I was lacking in certain technical areas. So therefore, that is really the trick that if you see something and you can lay that down on a piece of film or into a digital file that, and it works and you know that it works at that time that you take it, that is one of the things that you, you have to, as you journey down the road of life, that's one of the things that you have to, you have to get on top of. And as I've said many, many times, I'm not really 
a technical person. So then when I had to learn the technical side of photography, it was a pain in the neck. I didn't enjoy it. Now, I have other people that I know. Uh, for example, you might have, I had, of course, hundreds of assistants over the years. And it was interesting to me to see how comfortable some assistants were with technical things, that they just loved it, read up about it, they absorbed it, they enjoyed it, and they actually just loved the handling of the mechanics of all things connected with photography. The, every single little aspect of every lens and what every lens gave them in, every, in, in the digital world, what program they loved and how they downloaded things and so on. They just loved all of that. But there was kind of a sad thing. And as I had some really uh, wonderful assistants that were really superb and who really helped me with things. I always kept an eye on the image because I had a, a steadfast thing that if that image wasn't right as I was shooting it, I, I had a blockage there. And I just said, we've got to redo this and reframe it, reconceive it, re-something, you know. So I, had a, I was never carried along too far by assistants and, and technical things. However, after three years, these assistants left me and they would say to me, I'm, I'm going to work on my portfolio for six months. I'm going to come back. Can I show you my portfolio so you could have a look at it? And I said, absolutely. And I would put aside the time. I'd put aside a couple of hours for them. So when they came back in with their portfolio, I would look at their portfolio to see. And of course, a lot of times, a lot of times, I was shocked at the basically the lack of creativity in the portfolios, the lack of adventure, the lack of passion, drive, and love for photography. And where I began to see some rather heavy pictures, kind of not very well conceived, not communicating with the subject, not good fashion photography, not good portraiture photography, not particularly brilliant still life work. Um, even when they photographed a car, it, it wasn't particularly interesting. And uh, it was always very difficult because I would remain positive with them, but they just didn't have it. And I wanted them to succeed. I would want them to do well. I'd want them to, to go out there. And, and it, it, it was remarkable how disappointing their work was and how stellar their assisting was to me. I mean, how, how knowledgeable, how helpful, how they would monitor things just to make sure everything was going well. If a, if a stroll didn't work, they could fix it. You know, there were so many technical things that they were fluent in. I was astonished how, how weak they were when they came to actually making pictures. Because the bottom line is, if you're a photographer, guess what? The bottom line is not whether you can explain the, the interior workings of a digital camera, but let me see the pictures. I mean, you know, show me the meat, show me the potatoes, and, you know, let me see, the, let me see what it is, let me see the plate. You know, not how you make it or anything like that. But, let, you know, in the end, here's your portfolio. This is what you do. This is who you are. Uh, so in a weird way, they enjoyed photography and men were more guilty of it than women. There's a lot of men pulled into photography and there's a lot of women who are pulled into photography for creative reasons 
And in some ways, they have a head start because, but of course, then I would look at the work that the women photographers did and thought that, that, that it was very often extremely promising. But then, of course, sometimes uh, I found some of the women photographers that were assistants, I found them a little bit lazy technically, which is, you know, and it's this tightrope walking between technical things on one side, but the creativity is the, it, it's almost on the technical side, if you fall, you're going to fall five feet. But if you, if you fail on the other side, you go off a cliff, you know, so the creative is, is super important. So better to succeed in the creative and be a little bit weak technically. But of course, the perfect photographer is this balance between the two things. And I just felt it was my responsibility to at least be pretty technically aware of, of lighting. I mean, I think, I think that was the, the dominant thing. I mean, I, to become so comfortable with it, that you could almost handle any situation, whether it's candlelight or, as I speak about in the book, a $10 bulb, a $5 bulb that I spoke about. And I said, okay, now, you know, here I'm using a pro photo system that the, the total system is about $60,000, $70,000. But now I'm going to do a portrait with a $5 bulb. So why not? And that was a that was a great sort of a great example, and you know, in reading the book and then looking at the, the the video, which you demonstrated was not just about okay, what is the light source? What is the distance between the light source and the subject? What's the modifier? All the things that we typically hear in a lot of photo education, and the emphasis was okay, what is the light doing on the subject? What happens if I move it here and shift it over here? What if the subject turns? And it was attention to it was a, it, it was it was a a focus that wasn't on the technical for technical sake. It was like, what is this doing to the scene that I'm trying to, to create and open to the surprises. Cause I loved when you move the bulb and all of a sudden the, the model is completely transformed as that light moves across their face. And it's like, there were just so many different variabilities rather than just simply being locked in. And I think that part of creativity is, yes, it's vision, but it's also being open to chance. And some people aren't really comfortable with that. And, and I, which I've said so many times, you know, like, it, and I've mentioned and said in real estate, in real estate, it's location, location, location. In photography, a major aspect of this is preparation, 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 which I've said several times. The preparations, yes, the so, oh, I've got my camera and the tripod and the batteries, and so okay, that's fine. They don't, you know, almost. Let's not discuss that because it should be a given that that's together. So the preparation is yes, it's essential that your camera works because if you turn up and the and you don't have the batteries charged or something like that and the camera doesn't work, then you're not getting any pictures. So in a weird way, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's very important, but it's a given. But how much work, how much homework have you done here? And, and sometimes I've spoken to young photographers and they say, I like to be spontaneous. It, it, there's nothing wrong with being spontaneous, but just watch out that Mozart can be spontaneous because he was a genius and, and you can be spontaneous if you're a fabulous photographer, but if you're prepared with a plan, that doesn't mean to say that you can't be spontaneous. So, you know, when I say preparation, then the photographer say, I like to be spontaneous. 
He's spontaneous. I'm not in, in the scale of things. I'm not saying that because you're, you know, you're preparing and you have a plan and you have a sketchbook with ideas and there's a philosophy towards a shooting and uh, maybe you're going to shoot it all wide angle or something like that. And then maybe when you get there, your plan A is the wide angle doesn't work on the on, on what you're doing. Uh, but try it and you work at it. Just you don't want to be working on it for an hour and a half when somebody's sitting there. So yes, you might have to go to a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. But have some kind of plan when you turn up. Have some kind of preparation. Not just here I am. I happen to be the Mozart of photographers, and therefore I can just create something brilliant out of my head. Which is a moment. Of course, you should be looking for things. You should be, sometimes you may be doing, setting up quite a complicated lighting setup that you planned, that was plan A, but just when the subject is sitting next to a window, possibly having a bit of powder on, but suddenly the, the, the beautiful window light suddenly is magic. So, of course, you shoot that as well. Of course. You said, well, I hadn't, I hadn't planned to do, but at the moment, you know, I, I, I checked the studio, it was... The day I checked the studio, it wasn't sunny. Now it's sunny. And the sun casts the line shadows of the blinds above the subject, you know. And, and therefore, uh, that wasn't part of plan A. Then you jump to plan B, which is, you could say, spontaneity. But you should be switched on the whole time. There should be truly 5,000 volts going through your system of adrenaline when you're working. You yeah. should really switched on you know you, sh you shouldn't be over there chatting to a, to a hairdresser or a makeup artist or an art director too much you should be thinking about what you're going to do you know how you're going to communicate what homework have you done you know how much if you're photographing jack nicholson how much do you know about jack nicholson you know uh, so that when you speak to him you speak to him on on a, a level of what movie he just finished or what his next project is and so on. How do you communicate with other human beings to make them feel good, better, whatever, you know, even a model who speaks just a little bit of English, how do you communicate with them? She just arrived from Ukraine. How are you going to speak to her? How can you, can you, you know, how do you handle her to make her feel comfortable? Most people feel a little bit nervous when they come into a studio to be photographed because they may not know the photographer. They're putting their lives in your hands in a way you know you never know i mean there's some people you know diana ross when i first photographed her was a was a nightmare of insecurity i felt and and, and gave me a very hard time until she saw the first polaroid and when she saw the first polaroid then i was our best friend in the world and she booked me to you know, for three days to do all of her albums and all of her programs for the upcoming tour and all of that after she, she felt comfortable. So, of course, you know, in a lot of shootings, you want to, like that, you want to start with a little bit of a bang and you want to make sure you're prepared and that your first pictures look, you know, a little bit special. Yeah. On that, on that subject, you photographed Nicole Kidman several times, but the first first time I've read didn't turn out so well. And it was there was something about the shoot getting a little bit out of control. And I'm kind of not sure exactly what that that means. If you don't mind, if you could sort of explain what you, mistakes that you think you made on that particular shoot. Oh, I, um, I, I think it's a great example. 
it's a great example of almost doing too much. We were, you know, as I went through my career, we were always in demand. We were always working. And it's because I did so many different things. It's because it was not hard for me to shoot a catalog for a company like The Gap or something like that. It came naturally to me and I actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed the having to do 20 shots a day and make them interesting, powerful, with good lighting, but to make the graphics powerful, strong, wonderful, and so on. So we were in demand all the time. We were working for like five or seven different magazines at the time, that 10 magazines. We were working for it at the same time. And then fitting in advertising campaigns, we were doing all kinds of things, campaigns for, for Chanel or Prada and so on. We were busy all the time. So uh, the good news is we were busy all the time. The bad news is sometimes we were busy all the time. That was the bad news. And here was a perfect example that Nicole Kidman, it was the start of her career, and she was at that time pretty much an unknown, and she was just getting started. And uh, she'd done one movie called Dead Calm, an Australian movie, and uh, with Billy Zane, who I knew well, actually, even before he did that. And she came in, and because it was a water movie on a yacht, I came up with the idea. I said, let's, you know, put makeup on, but let's spritz her face with water so the makeup runs, you know? Everybody liked that idea, and I explained it to the makeup artist. And then, of course, I went into the darkroom to print while they were doing the makeup. And I got involved with my, you know, doing printing. And this is where, you know, here... I made a mistake that never happened again. It never happened again. But I suddenly was down there and printing and working, enjoying it and so on. And I suddenly noticed that it was at an hour and 15 minutes had gone by since she arrived. And of course, I then stopped printing and I went upstairs. And basically, Nicole Kidman had about two pounds of makeup on. It was far too much makeup. All you really need was a natural makeup with some mascara so the mascara would run on the cheeks a little bit, not a full-blown heavy black, you know, heavy makeup. That's something that, that normally I never let happen, but here it was right in front of me. And then, of course, the PR person says, and Nicole has to leave in 15 minutes to go and do a TV interview. So, so suddenly that I'm confronted with, someone, Nicole Kidman, who was almost unrecognizable with all this makeup on. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe the water will rescue it, but the water actually made it worse. Then I thought maybe my lighting won't rescue it. <laughs> and the lighting even made it worse. So it was really a disaster all around. It was, it, it, it's how even a photographer with experience to do something like that, that I got caught there and I, it, I, it was, Nobody else's fault but mine because the photographer is the controlling factor with all kinds of things. How he photographs the fashion, how he photographs and what does the hair look like, how he photographs the makeup and what does the makeup look like and what his vision is for the final shot. And I just knew that when I saw her that I had a problem because basically at that time there was no, no time to redo the entire makeup and start again. Normally I would have done that. If it was just a model that that happened by chance, I would have said, right, I'm sorry. I don't mind doing to prove to the makeup artist it doesn't work, but uh, it's a mistake this. Basically, that was a shooting that got out of hand. But, I mean, I did subsequent shootings with her, and I never 
we never had another problem like that. I didn't let that happen. You know, I did a for lots of different projects like uh, The Hours. You know that movie, The Hours, with uh, Juliana Moore and Meryl Streep. You know, I did the movie poster for that because I did a lot of movie posters. We actually made up and were good friends. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just wondering. You see, as a perfect example, and I, I have to say that had never happened before or happened since. But it can happen. It was. It happened. The bottom line was: Did it happen? Yes, it did. But you learn from it. But you, you, you never let that happen. I mean, it, it's almost. I knew it when I saw it that it was my fault. You know, I should have monitored the makeup. You can't just say, "Okay, the makeup artist does the makeup, the hairdresser does the hair, the stylist puts on the clothes." All you have to do is photograph it. No, you should be aware of what clothing is, what fabrics are, what's the difference between cotton and a brushed silk. And so on. You should be aware of that. You should have knowledge of the designers, what their viewpoint is, and so on. Then you should have knowledge about hair. A lot of photographers they don't care about that. They just want to photograph a pretty girl, you know? yeah. uh, and they should have knowledge of hair and what the hair should look like uh, in any kind of shot. And I worked with during certainly during the the late seven the seventies, the eighties, and the nineties, and the early two thousands. I worked with the best hairdressers in the world, and. Uh, you, they, they were, of course, they were brilliant, and you could, you could work with them, and they would create things for you. But you had to be involved. You don't just sit there and say nothing. Mm-hmm. You say, you know, it's not my. I'm not a hairdresser. I'm a photographer. So do do your thing. You know, no, you should be involved in it. You you should be monitoring what they're doing. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's the Nico Kidman story and uh, things like that. If you do make a mistake like that. You, you better be a fast learner and make sure that never happens again. Though we're inundated with content about photography, the focus is often about photographic equipment. Articles, blog posts, and videos draw a lot of traffic based on new or rumored products, even though most of them reiterate the same information and then they just move on to the next thing. And while I consume that content myself, I prefer to focus on the things that have really helped me become a better photographer. When I talk about photo books, including those offered by the Charcoal Book Club, I'm talking about a resource, an inspiration that has served me over the many years that I've used at least half a dozen different camera models or more. But regardless of the technology I've used, the things that I've gleaned and learned from these books have really developed the way that I see and the way I appreciate photography. It's also provided me another way to really enjoy photography. Turning the pages of a great book with exceptional work is a real pleasure. It provides me an appreciation for the imagination and the commitment of photographers, past and present, many of whom I've had the luck of having on the show. I really want you to experience that for yourself by becoming a member of the Charcoal Book Club. Their first edition books showcase contemporary photographers of all genres, ensuring that you receive something that you'll love. But if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. That's not a problem. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK, and it's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today, and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment.
you know, as we've talked about already, you, you got a degree in, in graphic design and your images, one of the, their strengths is their graphicness. Yes. You know, I grew up in sort of one of the highlight periods of posters and and album designs because because my dad, I was surrounded by this stuff, even though I may not have recognized, you know, the, the artistry that was involved in it. And I'm wondering, you know, during those periods, um, did you have... Uh, illustrators, graphic artists that you felt were early and big influences on, on you in terms of the way you saw photographically? Oh, absolutely. When I went to graphic design school, um, we were really myself and a couple of my friends, uh, we were obsessed by a lot of Polish graphics. We would see these wonderful posters that Polish designers did for theater and also for circus, you know, there'd be a, a circus traveling through Poland and, and they would do a poster for the circus that would be plastered all over the, the towns. And some of these posters were just absolutely sensational. And they would, the Polish designers would do theaters, circus and cinema posters. And I was influenced by them because there was always this power graphic and a, a lot of times a very good visual idea as well as that and at the same time I was influenced a lot by a German magazine called Twen T-W-E-N and uh, Twen had a lot of good photographers working for it at that time and uh, they also had some brilliant illustrators they had the it, the illustrator that you probably may or may not know called Heinz Edelman. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't know who Heinz Edelman is. But if I tell you that he did all of the drawings and animation for the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. Oh, okay, yeah. Then that was all done by Heinz Edelman. So at that time, I was definitely influenced by magazine graphics from, say, the German magazine Twen. And at the time, through that magazine, going back in time, uh, then I was influenced by the Dadaists that were German-Swiss, Swiss-German movement. And, of course, due to the art training, then I was, of course, heavily trained in the history of art. I mean, you had to pass exams on it. You weren't just kind of... Oh, I'm interested in the Renaissance or something. You, you, you had to have knowledge of, of movements like that. You, it wasn't just like, oh yes, uh, impressionism, you know, and you know, kind of. You say, you know, the people make the mistake. You hear them talking. You say, well, money was an impressionist, and you go, hey, that's fine. And so was Van Gogh, and you say, actually, not. Van Gogh was a post-impressionist, you know. Although Gauguin was influenced by Impressionism, he also became a post-Impressionist and almost went on to a certain almost surrealism in some of his paintings. So he was almost an early surrealist. And then Cezanne was an early Cubist. And so, but all of that knowledge, which I was given going through university, all of these things helped and encouraged me to be a better photographer. I mean, the study of graphics, you know, listen, in the end, you want to be a photographer? What do you look at every day? It's the common denominator in the vast majority of photography. 
It's what we all have to deal with. It's a rectangle. Photography is always a rectangle. Now, you might be a panoramic. It's a rectangle. It might be square. It's a rectangle. It might be vertical. It's a rectangle. And it might be horizontal. It's a rectangle. So what you put in that rectangle is the story of who and what you are. So a rectangle, you, when you choose to be a photographer, then you choose to enter the world of a rectangle because that's what your life is going to be forever and ever. It's a rectangle. So you better know that, you know, a rectangle has two sides to it and you may well be putting in a three-dimensional object, but essentially, even though your object looks, your photo looks three-dimensional, which it, it, it gives the appearance of that, in the end, it's of course two-dimensional. Uh, but it's how you, what you put in that rectangle that is everything. So therefore, that goes right back to graphics. So therefore, I would have, if I was teaching photography, I would insist on pretty heavy graphics at the beginning of that course, where when we were being taught graphic design, I remember that we had two hours, one day a week, just two hours, two hours per week, where you were given piece of black paper, eight inches by 10 inches, and they had punched out from a punch, little white dots in paper. And you were given some cow gum, some glue, and you would then make patterns on this eight inch by 10 inch piece of black paper with white dots. And you made patterns. You stuck the dots down, almost like a child's program. But I remember nobody liked doing this. You say, oh, my God, these dots. But, of course, once you're forced to two hours with a piece of black paper with white dots, and then it's two hours the next week, 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 and then you go into your second year and you still got these damn dots. <laughs> At some time, you begin to then force yourself to be creative. I mean, in the beginning, you just stick them all down and it looks like nothing. And then, of course, as time went on, your actual things became more sophisticated. So at the end of the year, when you had to put up your show to see if you had what talent you had, and you had to put up your best five pieces of black paper with white dots on them, then you began to get interested in white dots. Then you began to say, I better, if I have to start putting this up on my wall as a piece of my art, then I, I better make sure I'm going to begin to do some work on this. Yeah. I'll begin to do something interesting here. Begin to try and make this almost like it could be a painting, you know, or something, you know. Uh, but of course, that painful period was all part of the learning of graphics because of course, it was an eight inch by 10 inch piece of paper. And you had to then, you, you, your white dots were created in a rectangle. Yeah, because I, I see that in all the different work you, you do, whether it's the still lifes, the nudes, the landscape, that graphic sensibility is, is there. But the, what you just bring up um, leads me to, to, to want to ask you this. Do you think that the challenge that those dots presented to you that the, the the desire to find a solution to that creative challenge is one of the reasons why you like 
practicing all these different genres of photography that somehow each one poses a different challenge to you in terms of how you see, especially graphically? I think sometimes, and when you speak about graphic and you think about graphic design, there was one thing that, that the graphic design school also taught me was not just what patterns you make within a rectangle, but do you have a concept behind what you're doing? Is it possible to present a powerful graphic and have something, a statement about what you're making? And I, there was, I, I, I give you an example of what I did at the school. It's a perfect example of this. When I was given a project to do a poster for a play at the local repertory theater when I was at school. And the name of the play was Toys in the Attic. And it's a famous play. And it was about a little bit, it was about many different things. But one of the aspects was that how you're brought up psychologically can of course affect you later in life and can come to haunt you and to make you either deal with life in a good way or perhaps not be able to handle life. So the play had a lot of aspects of that in it. And I came up with a very simple solution where I got some children's wooden blocks, you know, the kind of wooden blocks that used to have the alphabet in them. Yes. Uh -huh. Sometimes, there, you know, there would be the ABC, the blocks, and you could make patterns and shapes and so on. And I got six wooden blocks that were about two inches each. And I then photographed a child and I cut the photograph of the child into exactly six pieces. And I pasted them on the side of the toys. Now that meant that the photograph was broken up and I was able to move and alter the appearance of this child that was a very normal, almost passport picture of a child. But I was able to move the bricks in different direction so that the image was a little bit disturbing. So it was a, a normal child, but the bricks just moved out of alignment and out of position. And then I then re-photographed the bricks mm -hmm. and that became the poster. And this was enough. So the bricks, the wooden bricks said toys, you know, toys in the attic, like in your mind, in the attic of your mind. It then said a lot. And it was, it was for me very successful because it, in the end, it was graphically strong, but it had a concept. It wasn't just like it was nice to look yeah. at, but it had, a, it had a concept in it. And therefore... When I came in touch much later, I became fascinated sometimes with minimal photography that was not amazing lighting or amazing, wow, that lens, that landscape, that, that photograph of, you know, Clint Eastwood or something, completely simple, almost taken to the basis of it being a passport picture. And... I then became interested in objects that were, that had an aura about them, like Tutankhamun's glove. So I then 
found out through connections that I had, and it was very complicated and took two and a half years to get in. I eventually got permission to photograph the personal items of clothing of Tutankhamun. And of course, the way to photograph that was just to basically take a passport picture of Tutankhamun's glove. So if I showed it to you, you would, you might look at it and say, well, it's, you know, what is that? A garden glove or something like that? You know, lots of photographers have done shots of, you know, an old thing they found in the garden, you know, mm-hmm. an, old, an old thing, and they put it on the light box and photograph it like a crushed beer can from the road. And they photograph that with, a, you know, a, a good camera. And therefore it becomes, this becomes textural. It can be graphics and so on. But I was interested in something beyond that, that when you look at it, it's a glove. But then through the storytelling, it was the oldest glove in the world. So now that suddenly it becomes, it's the oldest glove in the world because it's the only glove, a linen glove that survived from three and a half thousand years ago. There there isn't an older glove that I could find anywhere than the glove of Turingama because all gloves had disintegrated, fallen apart, didn't, they were thrown out or whatever, they were never saved. And also because Tutankhamun was of course a celebrity, then I was able to move from that on to, you know, when I went down to Graceland and I got permission from the people there, I was up in Elvis's bedroom that hadn't been changed since he died. And then I opened the bedside table and there was a, a comb in Elvis's bedside table that was a comb that he used, you know, and it had an E on it for Elvis, you know. So all you saw was a, a black and so I took a simple picture of that. The picture was nothing, but the concept was it was Elvis's comb, not anybody's comb. It was Tutankhamun's glove and Tutankhamun's socks, but it was Elvis's, you know, comb. And then I did Elvis's gold lamé suit that he had made for his gold record album cover, you know, by Nudie out in California there. And therefore, this became a miniature body of work of just mm. objects that had a concept of, of who they belonged to. But you also have pictures in your portfolio that are pieces of fruit in which... Um, oh, yeah. uh, if you talk about aura of your subject, and I think that the idea of aura and is concept, I think comes easy to people when they think about photographing a, a, a person, be it a celebrity in, in, in your case. But talk to me about recognizing the unique character of something inanimate and being able to create an image that is as expressive and as interpretive as creating a photograph of a person. I think, you know, that in photographing, say, a still life and going to something that is very well visited, like a bowl of fruit. Of course, the challenge is a bowl of fruit has been done by every painter going all the way back, I'm I'm sure, past the 14th century. And therefore, you have painters like Cezanne that might have done, you know, 80 paintings of, of apples and oranges or something. So the question is, is that you say, well, I'm going to do a bowl of fruit. Well, I mean, the challenge is, how do you try and do it a little bit differently? Can, can you put some of your sensitivity towards that and make it something that's interesting? Is there, 
you know, uh, photographing uh, a kiwi, a piece of fruit like a kiwi. And once I was in a market in New York and they were washing fruit. And it was, I took just a couple of quick iPhone pictures of when they were just washing the fruit. And I knew that this could be interesting in a studio setup with a, a powerful lighting setup uh, and with water just running over the fruit because there it was in front of me. So, and I'm not, I'm not saying to people listening to this, oh my God, that's a, that is a mind shattering idea of, you know, water running over fruit. But it, it was a start to just try and how do we, how do we make it a little bit more special? How do we raise it to make it a little bit unusual? Uh, because when I was in that market and uh, they were washing different kinds of fruit with just their, so that the fruit, when they put in the chilled area, you know, the water droplets stayed on the fruit and they became more enticing to look at, you know, uh, and they seemed fresher because they had water droplets on them and so on. You know, it was all part of that selling of something. Therefore, you have to, once again, do your homework. You say, what, what are you doing tomorrow? Well, I'm going to do a bowl of fruit. Well, okay, that's fine. Here's a bowl of fruit. What are you going to do to make this better than just a bowl of fruit? Because basically you can put a bowl of fruit there, take an iPhone and take a picture of it, and the whole exercise can be five minutes or less even. You know. So how do you begin to put weight into this? How do you, be, you begin to put, which is the secret word that all photographers should be looking for, is memorability. How, how do you put memorability into this image? Of course, it, that, that's something that you're looking for, not just to put into a bowl of fruit, but you're looking for to put into a lot of, a lot of things, like the, the, the Jack Nicholson shot with the 12 mirrors you know, that I set up in the studio. So I set up 12 mirrors. And of course, when he walked in and he stood on the spot, there he was in front of me in 12 minutes. So I had Jack Nicholson repeated 12 times. And I was lucky enough that when he arrived, he had a cigar and he said to me, he said, you know, I can blow a smoke ring. And I said, great, let's try that. So he then takes a puff of the cigar, blows a smoke ring. And then in front of me, there are 12 Jack Nicholsons. But of course, you need to set up the 12 mirrors before he arrives. You need to have the content. Be prepared. What's the preparation, preparation, preparation? For Jack Nicholson, the preparation was mirrors. So it's a simple idea that I used several times. Yeah. I, used, I used multiple mirrors, uh, dozens and dozens of mirrors when I photographed Michael Jackson. And so I just extended the idea and used it several times, maybe four or five times. Though many of us are now able to enjoy getting out, traveling, and returning to our photography, there may be some obstacles in the way. Because of COVID, many camera and lens manufacturers are experiencing delays in making and shipping out products. So having the use of that particular lens, camera, or accessory may be difficult because things are limited. But that doesn't have to limit what you can use for your next photographic experience because you can rent virtually anything from our sponsor, LensRentals.com. They have a large inventory of photographic gear from cameras, lenses, lighting, and more. If it's related to photography or video, they have it, and they'll make it available to you easily and affordably. 
Check out their inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at lensrentals.com newsletter. And thanks to all of you who continue to support The Candid Frame financially. By making the choice to contribute to the show, you are making so much of what we do possible. Despite the difficult year it's been for all of us, I am so appreciative that you've stayed committed to supporting the work that we do here. But if you haven't done so already, you can help contribute to the show by becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Just $5 a month from you can make a big difference. Thank you so much for your support. As you said before, you've worked with a lot of assistants, uh, but during the pandemic, uh, being able to interact with other people, especially work with other people, is sort of stifled. And, and I know that you are constantly working in them. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, during this period where you didn't have access to the normal crew, um, did you find that it provided you um, an interesting opportunity to practice uh, your photography in a, in a different way? Well, the, there is a sad thing. Uh, that kind of happened to me over the years because when you start out as a photographer, you're there. Sometimes once you've been a photographer for a little bit of time, uh, you, you know, you can get one assistant to help you. So, but when you have one assistant there, you turn up in the morning and guess what? You set up all the lights, you set up the, the things yourself. You know, you put a light a strobe head on a stand and then you plug it into your strobe, you know, you do it yourself. And as time went on and I became busier and busier and busier, I had a, a, a time where just the way it fell in, in the, in the basically the early eighties, I ended up with three Japanese assistants who were, I would say on the assisting scale, they were, 9.9 out of 10, all three of them. And they were the kind of people that in the morning when I arrived, they all stood up and bowed to me, which was <laughs> a little bit disconcerting. And I told them, of course, it wasn't necessary. And I told them it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. So they didn't do that anymore. But they were determined to do every single thing for me that I'm controlling it, of course. I'm controlling the lighting and making the final adjustments, but they were doing all of the things involved in a lighting setup, cabling, preparation, observations, everything for me. And over a period, when you have that over a period of two years, you, you lose a little bit of the tactile that you yourself set it up. In kind of reverse of that, that you're losing, you're, you're losing that ability to, to feel the mechanics of, of, of a setup. But the advantage was I suddenly found myself more and more involved with the creative. So I was able, with the backup of these guys, to suddenly become more and more and more involved with creative thinking, more and more. So I was able a little bit to divorce myself from the practicalities. And the best analogy was, I was moving from driving the car to 
backseat driving to the point that I was saying, right, we're, we're going to head down this freeway and you're going to take the first exit on your left. And then after that, you take a mountain road and then we're going to go on a dirt road to a reservoir and I'm going to photograph the water there. But I mean, I'm basically controlling it, but I'm no longer in that way driving it. That doesn't mean to say, I'm now not saying to them, okay, you set up the lights because I was always obsessed by lighting. And of course, I'm always making the adjustments myself. I'm always working on that myself. But I did lose some of the tactile. That was the, the a little bit of the sad part, and uh, and I'm more comfortable now, of course, working with a very very good assistant and a good team, because it enables me to work more like a surgeon, where you you put out your hand and and somebody puts a scalpel in your hand, or you put out your hand and there is a cable release. So that's just a natural thing as a photographer is going through his whole career that you you bit by bit you become really concentrated on the creative and what your picture should look like what do you, for people who pick up the book or or um, look at the the video course what do you, what are you hoping that people take away from having an opportunity to learn um, about how you work I, I, I tell you and I, I, I hope to answer the question that it was interesting once and I've only done this twice I think is to do, to go to a workshop, you know? And I remember going to the Santa Fe workshop and they said, we'd like you to teach a, a, a workshop. And a friend of mine was going out there and uh, I was so busy, I thought it was very hard for me to give up five days really, but I did. And of course, I just assumed that a workshop was a bunch of 18 year olds that didn't know what an F-stop was. <laughs> and then of course, turning up on the morning, the first morning, were all these guys who were in their mid-30s to mid-40s and even a couple that were 50, 51, you know? And they started arriving in Mercedes and Lexus cars and, you know, and I thought, wow, who are these guys? And they turned out to be all working photographers that had driven there from all over the West Coast. They'd driven from LA to there, they'd driven from San Francisco, and they'd driven from Portland, and even two people had driven down, two photographers had driven down from Vancouver. So they all came into this class. So in the beginning, here I was thinking I had to explain an F-stop, and they were all working photographers. They all had their own studios with assistants. And the main thing that they, that I, I thought, well, why do you need me? You seem to all be very successful. You're all driving fancy cars, etc., etc., And then, they were a little bit shy in the beginning, but the bottom line was, which was an unanswerable, and I couldn't help them. They, they all said, yes, we are, but we're not famous. Hmm. How do we make the next step towards being a famous photographer? How do we increase our work so that the work becomes famous? Of course, when as since I guess if you're doing a workshop, you're the teacher. And at that point, it's a very difficult thing to, uh, to, to answer that. Now, to go back to your question regarding what the book was to be about, the book and the video is how I did it. 
So I'm not saying this is what you should do. I'm just saying this is how I achieved what I set out to do. This, how do, you know, and I, I, I mentioned to, to them so many times, I said, the problem is you've created a lot of images where people look at the images and say, yes, I see what you're doing. You can shoot a fashion catalog for me, or you can shoot a jewelry catalog for me, or you can do, you know, a detail of a Ford truck for me and, and things like that. I said, but are any of the images that you're creating, do they have, are they heavyweight images? Do they, are they memorable? Are they, wow, are they powerful? Um, and I said to some of them, I said, look, I, I think some of the images are very nice. Some of them you're creating nice images here. But some of the images that you're creating are at the level of, which is very damning of me to say, trying to be positive, the level of popular photography. You know, I said, stay away from these magazines like popular photography, which essentially popular photography Essentially, the readership is 85 to 90 percent amateurs who want to be photographers or who love photography with a passion. I mean, my dentist is is a, a hardcore photographer. He's a dentist. But when he finishes and he goes home, he spends five hours a night working on his pictures on his computer every night. He's obsessed. And any holiday he gets, he's off to the Antarctica or you know, the, the, the tip of South America, or he's going to, you know, iceberg fields up north, or, or he's always looking for things, or he gets a special permission to photograph the Mets baseball team and things like that. He's obsessed by it. So it's a funny thing. Yeah, what yeah. does he do? He's a very, very successful dentist. Well, if he were my dentist, I would just hope that he hadn't overslept uh, the evening before he's supposed to work on my teeth. No, 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 no. He's, <laughs> uh, but you know, he's he's a disciplined guy. I mean, that's the kind of thing. He's very disciplined when he's working as a as a as a dentist. But he he has this private thing. I think I think he hopes he can't wait for the moment that he retires as a dentist and bingo, when he wakes up in the morning, he's a photographer for the rest of his life. You know, he he really loves it. You know, but. The story I told you about trying to instill in these these photographers this idea, elevating your photography. Okay, you've reached a certain point. They had reached a certain point with their photography, and they were having difficulty elevating it. That was the point. Mm -hmm. They were elevating it into another level where the the pictures that you make are memorable. It's a it's a bottom line. I mean, right. special, memorable. Memorability, it's, a, it's, you know, you think of so much great art, you look at, and since I, I jokingly mentioned before the Sistine Chapel, you know, you look at the Sistine Chapel, guess what? You remember it. You know, God touching the finger of man, you kind of remember. I mean, it's kind of like, wow, that's a good image. <laughs> yeah. Michelangelo at his best, or, or the smile of Mona Lisa, you know. You know, I was just last, let me see, this is what, Tuesday? On Friday of last week, I was in Italy. I was doing a project there, and I was in the library in Milan that houses all the drawings, not all, but 1,100 drawings of Leonardo. And, and of course, it was a very special thing to be 
to be in a library that was closed and to spend time with the curator looking at these drawings. You know, I mean, what a what a special thing that was. And I just did that on Friday. And on Thursday, I was on the top of Mont Blanc at, at you know, basically at 12,000 feet. So, I mean, these are the these are the kind of projects that you somehow, that uh, help me a lot and keep me stimulated. You know? Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I, I, I hate to come back at you and say it's, all, it's impossible to do that, you know, because I think there's so many good photographers. Now, when you say there's so many, when you start numbering, there's there's maybe 100 or 150 really great photographers. And uh, you go, wow, that's a lot. You know, well, photography has been around for 120, 160 years approximately. Somebody can correct me, 165, 69 years, something. During that time, these are the photographers that I, that I like. This morning, I'll give you a name from this morning. I was just looking at a photographer I know very well called Bill Brandt. Yeah. Bill Brandt is really a, a photographer that really was able to move in a circle of reportage photography, but he was also a surrealist. So he was able to, and, and was a, a man of his time. So he was, you know, influenced by the surrealist. He was influenced a little bit by Man Ray. I don't think he copied Man Ray, but he might have been influenced by Man Ray. But he's certainly a photographer that has a really beautiful body of work. And uh, his wide-angle nudes, his the ear on the beach is such a, a beautiful image. You know, you 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 go to the beach and you you find a shell, maybe if you're lucky, and you put it to your ear and you can hear the ocean sort of thing, you know, what, what, whatever. But here is just, he photographed somebody, a human being's ear on the beach with pebbles and cliffs and sky. And it's, it's, it's a really emotional image. And guess what? It's memorable. Yeah. His portrait of Francis Bacon, the painter, is really kind of almost a troubling portrait of that artist. Uh, he, he also photographed the staff of country houses that now really don't exist. So he was between a reportage photographer and an art photographer. And it's certainly somebody that uh, you can look at and uh, not only go, wow, but he created what I've mentioned so many times during this talk. He created memorable images. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time. I really enjoyed having a chance to talk with you. No, the questions were well thought out. And I, I loved the chatting. Thanks to Albert for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting albertwatson.net. And find out more about his book and online course by typing in Masters of Dot Photography. And remember, it's Masters of Dot Photography in order to go to the correct site. Or to make it easy for you, you can just check out the link in the show notes or our website. 
On July 24th, I'll be doing an online presentation for the Maryland Photography Alliance. I'll be speaking on the subject of how to improve your photography by getting out of your own way. The event is open to everyone with contributions going to the Maryland Food Bank. Get more information and register by visiting mdphotoalliance.org. Now, your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or any service you use to listen podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a big difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Suzanne Lopez for her recent contribution. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>